Okay, so welcome to everyone. Uh, only one announcement that I'm aware of, and uh, that is that there are quite a few beach towels that have been left over from Vacation Bible School. Uh, they're over in the coat rack area. So, excuse me, if you uh, remember bringing a beach towel and you don't remember taking it home or you just want to double check, go take a look and take a look. They look like very nice beach towels, so you might want to check out uh, those beach towels. I think that's the only announcement. The other um, thing that we normally do every week is we recognize our birthdays. And this morning, we only have one birthday for the whole week, and that's Doug Ferguson. He's on Wednesday. And he's speaking at Bethel. That is not an excuse. We need him. We have the church here and everything. Would you do a favor and tell your dad that we've missed him greatly, and Lois is going to come up and offer a birthday prayer. Um, and next year he's got to put in double. Okay. We'll charge interest, yeah, with interest. Good catch. Will you pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, please bless those with birthdays this week. Remember them. We appreciate all their efforts in behalf of the church and you. And be with them. Thank you, Lord. Amen.
Good morning. I always like to sit up here because I really like seeing all of your faces. I get positive and wonderful sense of community and a wonderful sense of support when I'm up here. So I'm grateful for that. Thank you. I'm also glad to be back. Wade and I have been traveling quite a bit, and I've missed you. I've missed being here and having the chance to catch up and worship with you. As I was thinking about our theme for today, which is prayer, a holy conversation, I could look back over my life and think about all the different ways that I had had a holy conversation with God. I could remember my childlike prayers. I could remember my long mother prayers. <laughs> I could remember quick prayers asking for help. I could remember grateful prayers. I thought of all the different ways that I said those prayers. Some took um, a long time to formulate and to form into the deepest parts of my soul coming out to in, in conversation with God. Some were just little prayers. Some took a lot of work. Some took dedication of prayer and faith and hope that one day they would be answered. Some were answered so quickly, I didn't even notice until I was past that point. And then I would look back and go, wow, what a blessing. I, I received something there. So the conversation, I think, is authentic. It's personal. It can be public. There are many, many, many ways to have those conversations with God. What I never have figured out and probably won't because it's the mystery of God is the timing of those answers <laughs> and why the answers are what they are. But that's the beauty of the mystery of God. And I do know that there is always grace. There can always be support regardless of the answers that we might anticipate or want. Sometimes... God is just there to hold our hands, and that, too, is a continuing conversation. As you'll see in the focus moment that I will um, be participating in with some of my very special friends, we will talk about and get to do an exercise together about prayer and conversations, how it involves all of our being, our senses, our awareness, our hearts. So we can look forward to that time to continue talking about this conversation. Now, if you would, I will invite you to stand and sing hymn 87, and then we're going to continue standing while Sidna lights the peace candle and says the peace prayer. That will be our opening.
Lord, teach us to pray for peace and to be your hands and feet as we put more efforts into peace and justice. Remind us of the capacity we have to receive these gifts from you. You told us to ask, and it will be given. Search, and we will find. Knock, and the door will be opened. Teach us, God, to ask for a world free of violence and fear. Search for peace and to knock on the right doors so the way forward is free of despair. Thank you for teaching us how to pray just as you pray. Help us to always persevere in prayer and never lose hope. We ask for your blessing of love and peace. Amen. I have some special helpers that are going to come up and help me. Come on and sit down here, girls. Got a few more somewhere. <laughs> Some of you can come over here if you want to. We got some extra helpers too. Yay! <laughs> no worries. There's no requirement. <laughs> Okay, so I didn't know if I had a chance to tell all of you helpers up here this, but we're going to be working on a prayer along with the congregation, but you guys are going to be my helpers and hold up the things that they're going to think about, all right? So when we frame prayers as a conversation, we encounter the reality that prayer is informal and natural, but also authentic, vulnerable, and intimate. When we pray, either by ourselves or in a community, we invite others and God into our lives in a real way. Today, I invite you to join me in awakening all of our senses to God. Okay, Kaylin, hold this up. Hold it up really high. Other way. Dear God, we open our ears to hear you in our midst. We pause together in silence, contemplation, and gratitude. We lift our hands to see you in creation. Hold them really high. In the faces of others in this space of worship and in all that we encounter, we offer thanks for all that we can do. We breathe deeply, aware of smell and breath, knowing that the word spirit also means breathe. We breathe you in and out, fully encountering the power of your spirit. Together, 
want you to do this if you'd like. Feeling our skin and knowing that we came from the dust, given life by the breath of spirit, we offer gratitude with our lips for the humanity, for our humanity, its uniqueness and its beauty. We open our hearts to you. As Je- we open our hearts to you, O oh God, as Jesus promised, when we ask, we shall receive. And when we knock, the door shall be opened. Though we often pray with the hope of resolution and clarity, may we also find comfort in the mystery and vastness of life in the spirit. Amen. You can keep them if you want, or you can give them to me later. I, my first uh, thing I have to admit this morning, an admission, is that uh, I'm obviously not a very good speaker because 
I did not come equipped with props, okay? And W.C. Fields, some of you may remember who he is, most of you probably are not old enough, but W.C. Fields used to have a great quote that said, you never work with children and dogs because you can never stage them. I don't think there's any more truth to that than sitting here and watching these little ones up here from behind. I can't recall when I was that age that I was as comfortable or as confident as those youngsters are sitting up here in front of a group of people and for all intents and purposes, performing. And if you, if you haven't realized today, in today's world, kids that age are not as poised, not as um, contented, uh, and, and certainly not as relaxed as that, those seven were. But I was also reminded of the fact that uh, we rejected polygamy many years ago in the church, but when I look up here and see one young man with six women, <laughs> one is hard enough. I can't even envision having six to have to try and take care of. But he did an excellent job, in my estimation, of keeping those women under control. But the theme for this morning is entitled, A Holy Conversation. As I was planning for this morning's remarks, I was reminded of a number of instances when I have used the word holy in conversation. Holy moly, holy grail, holy smokes, holy roller, holy cow, holy of holies, holy terror, holy mackerel, holy joe, holy wars, holy crap, holy clover, and Holy Moses, but I can't recall ever using the term holy conversation in the same sentence. Several weeks ago, a reference was made to today's theme as a holy conversion rather than a holy conversation. And I have to admit, at the time when I saw that, I was a bit concerned. I've always been very selective about the themes that I'm willing to speak on, and the holy conversion was simply not one of those. I was confident, could not recall at the time that I saw that exactly what the topic was for today, but I feared that in a moment of error, I might have committed to something that I would not knowingly have done. As my bewilderment grew, I went back and looked at the email exchange that I had had with Allie some months ago. And to my relief, I found that the theme was a holy conversation. Much less a problem for me, and let's face it, that's all I was concerned with. Although the topic might be worthy of some exploration, I am not the person to do it. With that said, let's press on with the subject for today's theme. I was reminded by Jeannie that I always need to have a personal story to share as a part of my sermon. 
As I did, I thought about today's theme. I tried to recall where and when I've been party to a holy conversation. I'm going to have to ask the forgiveness of Alan and Kathy Ramirez because they may have already heard this story. And so I've taken the liberty of asking them to correct me if I tell it differently here today than I did the last time they heard it. But my thoughts turned to a time when I was about eight or nine. I had three good friends who I have said before, whose names were Billy, Craig, and Larry. We did everything together, each of us trying to outdo the others. This led to my understanding and my prior admission that I could not fly. Our summers were pretty boring by today's standards. From early morning until late evening, we hung out together. We rode our bikes, we played baseball, and we engaged in our own amount of mischief. Billy's parents owned a tavern and a pool hall. His parents worked until late in the evening, and the family lived upstairs. Billy, Craig, Larry, and I had the run of the place in the mornings. No one was around, and Billy's dad paid us to sort out the beer bottles each morning while he slept on the top of a snooker table. Billy's dad had a drinking problem. And as the evening progressed, he knew less and less about what was taking place in his own business. He kept his money in a cigar box under the bar, not a safe location, which was made apparent one morning when Billy showed up in the pool hall with the box under his arm. He proceeded to divvy up the proceeds from the night before to each of us over $100 a piece, at a time when a good salary for a family was $50 to $75 a week. Well, being the person that I was, I took my share and I went home. For several days, I slept with that roll of money under my pillow, wondering what should I do. For three days, I struggled with that dilemma. On the fourth day, my mother came home from her job at Walgreens. She told me that Billy had been into the store several times that week, buying up cartloads of plastic model kits. She asked me if I knew where he got the money and if his parents knew what he was doing. Being the worthy and devoted son that I was, I immediately looked up to her and said, no idea. <laughs> well, she seemed content with that answer, but I didn't. I immediately went, left the house, went looking for Billy, and gave him back the money. I knew in that moment that when I was speaking to my mother, I had been engaged in the closest thing to a holy conversation <laughs> that I ever wanted to have. 
After that day, I never wanted to have any conversation more intimate, more frightening than that one. When we think of a holy conversation, there are few instances between a creator and those that he has created that we find recorded in scripture. The most immediately recognized ones are Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, Abraham's plea for Sodom, Moses' encounter in Mount Horeb, Saul en route to Damascus, and Peter in Jerusalem. But history records a numerous conversations that equate to what we find in scripture from people like Joan of Arc, Johann Eck, Ignatius Loyola, Thomas More, Martin Luther, John Calvin, John Knox, John Wesley, Thomas Cromwell, and Joseph Smith. In each of their experiences, they each sought out the mind of God, and they each engaged in conversation about themselves, about the nature of God, and what God's plan was for each of his children. There's a number of, of lessons that we can learn from it. The first being that in those conversations, in those experiences, God saw value in extending his divine presence without any condition or qualification to any and all of his creation that sought him out. The second lesson is that we know from those records that God has spoken throughout time. The fact that history is replete with stories across generations and generations of people of God speaking to them serves to show that to converse with God is a much more common occurrence than many of us want to admit. The record is extensive, the new witnesses are numerous, and the impact that those conversations had upon history is well documented. The third lesson is that conversing with God is an experience that is always marked by humility, not hubris. Those that have recorded their experience recognize that they have no special claim on God's presence in their life. They simply reached out in faith and found God to be in their midst. They claim in, in each one that they have no special reason for God talking with them. And to the day they died, each one of them recounted that experience in humility, 
and grace in the belief that they were truly blessed, but they don't know why. Fourth lesson is that we are each invited to have a conversation comparable to those as part of our own spiritual development. An invitation has been extended to us that is eternal, enduring, and to each and every single member. Every person in every generation is afforded the opportunity for that sort of relationship. But while all are called, few have ever chosen to do so. The fifth lesson is that we are not limited in having that conversation to one time. The extent of our interaction with God is completely something of our own making. In those instances where we have a record, we find that these conversations serve to reinforce faith and deepen one's desire to nurture that spiritual relationship further. They seek to have that conversation again, to have that experience again, and to know of God's enduring presence in their life. The sixth lesson is that the extraordinary nature of these experiences are such that we cannot keep from telling others about them. In some instances, the very mention of them was met with not just skepticism, but outright persecution. We know the price of witness that was paid by so many that have experienced and engaged in those conversations. And yet, we can take heart in our knowledge that even in suffering and sacrifice, we give honor to our Creator by sharing it with others. Lesson seven, a creator-created conversation, that's a mouthful, is meant for our benefit. God gains insight to his greatest creation with every conversation, but we gain more insight into our creator and it forever enriches our life, reinforces our faith, and reminds us of God's ever-abiding presence. Sidney Rigdon wrote many years ago of his own experience in holy conversation when he recounted his engagement with that, quote, that still small voice in the wilderness. Interestingly, he never said a, still, a small voice, still small voice, but that still small voice. Reagan knew immediately that he was engaged in conversation with God and no one else. He needed no assurance from others to know that his encounter was divine in nature and determined in purpose. But Rigdon's conversation with God was not isolated or exclusive. 
The history of the Restoration is replete with examples of the most common of people being the subject of God's interest and attention. The Doctrine and Covenants records many of those engagements in detail, and the very fact that they happened is the fulfillment of a promise made in the earliest days of the Church and forever baked into its theological foundations. To me, the most incredible facet of the Restoration Movement was its recognition that even the most subtle engagement with God merits perpetual record. And even when we might no longer find acceptance or endorsement of that engagement, we never excise it from our collective memory, but we simply relegate it to another part of that same record. Unlike some others, we have not run from our experiences, although they might be embarrassing, but we have tried to provide context and meaning. We have never denied those engagements ever happened. And for that reason, I've found both respect and preference for instructions that are found in the Doctrine and Covenants over those that might be found in other sources of scripture. I'd like to read for you a brief passage that comes from the Doctrine and Covenants. It's in the first section, and it's the first verse. Hearken, O you people of my church, saith the voice of him who dwells on high and whose eyes are upon all men. Verily I say, hearken ye people from afar, and ye that are upon the islands of the sea, listen together. For verily the voice of the Lord is to all men, and there is none to escape, there is no eye that shall not see, neither ear that shall not hear, neither heart that shall not be penetrated. And the rebellious shall be pierced with much sorrow, for their iniquities shall be spoken upon the housetops, and their secrets shall be revealed. And the voice of warning shall be unto all people by the mouths of my disciples, whom I have chosen in these last days, and they shall go forth, and none shall stay them, for I, the Lord, have commanded them. That section was given on the third day of a special conference of the church in Hiram, Ohio, on November 1st of 1831. Despite its appearance in the Doctrine and Covenants, it was not the first revelation to be received and recorded by the church. If the material contained in the Doctrine and Covenants were to be assembled in chronological order, this instruction would be number 67. It was only in 1833 when the Book of Commandments was being assembled that Joseph and his associates recognized the universal nature 
of this particular instruction and selected it specifically to be the preface for a unique, unprecedented compendium of modern scripture. It's been suggested by some historians that the pure essence of the Restoration Movement, its purpose, place, and prospects are all contained within the brief 43 paragraphs contained in section one. In many instances, God needs say no more, offer no additional instruction to that which is contained therein, but we know he did not. And the fact that he did not reaffirms our core belief that God is ever present, ever attentive, and ever willing to personally engage with all those he has created. But I'm getting ahead of myself for a moment, and I want to go back to that day at the beginning of November 1831. On that particular day, at that particular conference, the individuals present had been engaged in a lengthy debate on the need for revisions to the Articles and Covenants that had been initially adopted by the church a year previous. In the 18 months since the church had been established, much was different about the church. The followers of the Restoration had grown significantly. Rules and regulations had been introduced to manage that growth. Practices had been formalized and authority had been conferred upon a number of people by the church's leadership. Numbered among those present for that conference were individuals who believed that they were empowered to make changes to revelation by simple acts of legislation. They questioned the need for any kind of further spiritual pronouncements. Others believed the revelatory record that had been provided them to date was good, but they preferred to reinstitute the Hebrew practices of having a court of, er of elders establish the code of conduct for them and to follow traditions that had been established in the Old Testament. Others still suggested that God spoke only to or through the Joseph was not democratic. It was un-American. And they argued that all men were sufficiently worthy to know the will of God without anyone else interpreting it for them. Needless to say, Joseph found himself with a problem that day. He saw the fledgling movement that he then led was facing a crisis of its own, a crisis that left unresolved that he could see, that left unresolved, would see the imminent demise of his work. The very success of the restoration, the message, the idea that God might engage in an enduring conversation with those that he created seemed threatening, threatened to divide the group. The very idea of a living and listening God was so different 
and so appealing to many people that in a short space of time it had attracted many, many individuals to the church. But those individuals in many instances brought with them different perspectives from their backgrounds. Subtle but substantive differences that found their way into the discussion and debate in 1831. Of the many that were gathered at that conference, few shared much in the way of common experience, family, friendship, basic beliefs, social and economic status, skills, homeland, or heritage. They were every bit as different, if not more different, than what we might find at any session of World Conference today. And yet from this experience with God, Joseph saw a single purpose to his work, to make a very diverse group of seekers a community who shared a common purpose, and to do that shared a shared foundation. Section one was meant to remind those present that day and to the general generations that follow of a covenant, of an enduring covenant that had been made between creator and created that had existed for as long as recorded history, a covenant that long ago had been dismissed by many but which G Joseph sought to restore. A covenant that God continued to hold out to any and all who humbly sought him and were prepared to make a place for him in their life. Section one sets the tone of the restoration, something that was notably different from the teachings of its contemporaries, a declaration of God's unabated concern for all he created, a defining statement that remains an enduring principle in a world where little endures the test of time and taste. Since 1831, section one has served as the preface to the Book of Commandments, the initial efforts to codify the covenant that had been established earlier. The most distinctive aspect of the restoration teachings, an unqualified belief that God was alive, well, and engaged with all of his creation. An unconditional belief that God continues to express interest in having a sacred relationship with those that he created. Section 1-1 clearly sets out the promise of God's abiding attention and willingness to engage in conversation. Joseph recognized from his very experience in the grove the need for maintaining that ongoing revelation, or I'm sorry, that ongoing conversation. By definition, a conversation entails at least two parties engaged in a verbal exchange with some mutually understood purpose. Now, I take exception to that definition because my experience with my children 
was that conversation was one way, always. It was like talking to a wall. But I found, it was, I started looking at this definition that I could not find anybody who ever even began to suggest that you could have a conversation with a wall. So I take issue at the fact that I might have tried to have conversation at times with my children, but I can't say that it met that test. But for purposes of our discussion, we're going to assume that this is correct. So by definition then, a conversation entails at least two parties, engages in verbal exchange with a mutually understood purpose. In my estimation and in my experience, that is a remarkable happening. God engages with his creation with the belief that we are intelligent enough to understand and appreciate what he has to share with us. We are not, in God's eyes, a wall. Furthermore, he engages in that conversation in the belief that we are fully capable of processing whatever it is that's shared with us, embrace it, and modify our behavior in response to that information. God provides us with the ability to relate, to reason, and to rationalize. He counts on us to use those talents to seek him out, to engage with him in holy conversation, and in so doing, bring our lives into harmony with his purposes and plans. George Berkeley, who was a British philosopher in the mid-early 19th century, posed a question to his students that I'm sure many of you are all familiar with. If a tree falls in the forest with no one to witness it, does it make a sound when it falls? Interestingly enough, 50 years previously, Signe Rigdon alluded to a similar idea when he suggested that God continues to regularly speak to his creation in the belief that someone will attune their ear and hear his voice. Implicit in his statement was that, and often unnoticed by those that reference Sidney's experience with divine encounters, is that simply because God's voice has gone unnoticed, or more likely unrecorded, does not mean that God has not spoken. In Sidney's view, the record of those holy conversations is slim. The fact that the, the record of holy conversations is slim is not attributable to God's disinterest, and the fact that, but the fact that too few people have shown the willingness to seek that conversation with him. We are each called daily to engage in holy conversation with our creator, to seek him out, 
and began a life journey of merging our secular and sacred worlds into one. I encourage you this morning to heed the counsel of Sidney Rigdon and listen for that small voice that cries to each of us to embrace the opportunity that is afforded us and fully engage with our Heavenly Father in the holiest of conversations, knowing that in so doing, we will be forever blessed. That is my hope, and that is my prayer. This month's National Geographic um, and this month's Herald, the church's uh, publication, um, came in the mail, of course, but their covers uh, caught my attention. National Geographic says on the cover for its cover story, a world on the move, seas rise, crops weather, wars erupt, humankind seeks shelter in another place. And on the picture is a, a mother carrying, I assume a mother, uh, carrying a child in the water. And it looks like in the waves. <clears throat> and if you haven't read it yet, the story is about refugees and it has plenty of accompanying photographs about the forcible displacement of people around the globe for reasons of uh, war and economic hardship, those are just some of those reasons that people are being displaced, as we know. The latest United Nations report says that approximately 69 people have been, 69 million people have been forcibly displaced by the end of 2017. Half of them are of the age of less than 18 years old. And the World Bank says that by 2050, the effects of climate change will spur some 143 million people to migrate because of uh, weather or other issues in our, our world. The July cover story of the Herald is titled, Pew Sitting, Are We Too Comfy? And it's by Alex Gataba. And um, both of those stories have prompted me to have a holy conversation with God. <clears throat> and specifically about what I should be doing next as a disciple of Jesus Christ. It has also prompted Anne and I to engage in prayer with God and to seek out answers on how we can use our gifts and resources in the future asking God, where are you leading us now?
or today. In a newly released book titled Choose Generosity, Discovering Whole Life, Stewardship, that's a long title, Choose Generosity, Discovering Whole Life, Stewardship, Stacy Cram, member of the First Presidency and counselor to the President of the Church, says that the number one stewardship principle is to receive God's gifts. God's gifts are to us, to each of us. They come in person with boundless and unending love. God's gifts for each of us are expressed through the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. In Jesus, we see a life called, guided, sustained by the Holy Spirit. And the inward journey of Jesus' life was intentional about keeping a close connection with God. His outward journey was touched through personal and meaningful connections with other people, like what we do in our community here, in our greater community, in our neighborhood, and at work. When we are generous as God is generous, we release Jesus Christ's mission to touch many people's lives around the world. And we are reminded in Doctrine and Covenants section 165 to undertake compassionate and just actions to abolish poverty and end needless suffering. Every gift to God matters. Earlier this month, Community of Christ made two oblation donations of $5,000 each to save the children and International Rescue Committee. And the church's statement on immigration is aligned with the work of these groups that advocate for immigrants and provide compassionate relief to children. Will those receiving the offering please come forward? Let us pray. Sustaining God, we have graciously received from you overflowing abundance in our lives. In this moment of giving, may you bless those who give and also those gifts we received. Bless those entrusted with using the gifts received for further Christ's mission of making a world a better place and helping us to be better stewards of our time and treasures. In Jesus Christ's name I pray, amen.
Go forth in joy. You have God's kingdom in your heart. Go forth in love. Live for the Lord. Go with hope and forgiveness. The grace of God sustains. Go forth in peace. Go forth in light. Thank you.